The following message is by Dr. Matt Thornton, pastor of North Bryant Baptist Church. For more information on what we believe and for many other helpful Bible lessons, we encourage you to visit our website at northbryantbaptist.org. That is northbryantbaptist.org. I won't ask you to raise your hand because I don't want to embarrass you. How many of you have ever disobeyed God? How many of you have ever needed God's mercy and His patience, His forgiveness, two or three or four second chances? Have you ever been mad at God? Have you ever been angry? When the Lord blessed someone else who didn't deserve it like you did. If you answered yes to any of those questions, and if we're honest, we all did, then you're a lot like one of God's Old Testament prophets. You say, surely not, right? Brother Matt, prophets are supposed to be obedient. And humble and understanding and loving and and rejoicing when others receive mercy. Well, yeah, they're supposed to be. We're all supposed to be that way. But there was one Old Testament prophet who was a disobedient, angry, pouting, sorry excuse for man of God. His name was Jonah. This morning, I want to begin a short series through the book of Jonah. And this sermon uh, will, will be our introduction, our overview of that, prepare us for what's to come. Lord willing, I do plan to preach through 2 Peter soon. We finish 1 Peter. But I wanted a short break from that, and I wanted it to be a narrative. I wanted it to be a story. You may already know the story of Jonah. I hope you do. You may have known it for years and years. But trust me that we can all learn and grow more from this remarkable book that hopefully we've heard many times already. You look at Jonah chapter 1. I'm going to sort of jog through the book uh, for a few minutes this morning and and give us an overview. But in Jonah chapter 1, we see how it all begins with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of uh, Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof, and went down into it, to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. The prophet Jonah spurned God's call to proclaim judgment against Nineveh. And he boarded this ship going the opposite direction. But it's tough to run from God. God sent this wind, which created a great storm on the sea, and it not only threatened the lives of Jonah, or the life of Jonah, but also the lives of all the sailors on board that ship. And throughout the chapter, the sailors do everything they can 
to try and save the ship and save their lives. They throw cargo overboard. They do all the things that sailors know to do in storms, but this is a storm like, like none other. They do things to try and determine why this is happening. And they determine that Jonah is the reason for this storm. God is angry with him. And Jonah knew it too. And Jonah told them that if you throw me overboard, you'll be fine. Look at verse 12. He said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Now that may seem heroic, that Jonah is willing to die for these sailors, to save the ship and to save these men. But really what it boils down to is that Jonah would rather die than go preach to Nineveh. The men don't want to do this. They know that throwing a man overboard in a sea like this, in a storm like this, is undoubtedly death. But as a last resort, hoping to calm the seas and begging God to forgive them and not charge them with this man's life, they toss Jonah overboard. You know what? The seas are calm all of a sudden. Jonah's as good as dead, but God was not finished with him yet. Look at verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I used to think this was a fish of judgment, and it was somewhat. But more than that, it was a fish of mercy. Because Jonah would have drowned had God not intervened. Mercifully, this great fish swallowed up Jonah. And notice in chapter 2 and verse 1 what Jonah did from the fish's belly. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly. Jonah prayed. And I want you to notice in verse 9 at the end of the verse one thing that Jonah does pray and what he says. The end of the verse 9 says, Salvation is of the Lord. Some label this as the key verse in the entire book of Jonah. And I wouldn't argue with that at all. Salvation is God's. It's His doing. It's His right. He gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. It's because of His mercy and His love that anybody in the world can and will be saved if they repent. Jonah praised this. But he has still not learned it yet. After three days and three nights in this fish's belly, the fish vomits him up onto the dry land. And Jonah's given a second chance, right? Look at chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah up on the dry land. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise. Go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose. I would think so, right? And went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. We'll stop reading there. This time he obeyed. Wouldn't you? After Jonah's prophetic sermon, there is a city-wide revival that happens in Nineveh. From the king to the lowest. 
a great revival happens. And God shows mercy on the city. He withholds His judgment. He demonstrates His love and His patience and His forgiveness at the end of chapter 3. And if we were writing the story, the story would end there. It would end with this great revival and a happy ending, a successful prophet. What a great missionary journey. Maybe Jonah's better than the Apostle Paul. But the Holy Spirit had other plans. And the story does not end there. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. And if you don't know the story, this will shock you. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was very angry. Jonah is furious that God has shown mercy to Nineveh. Jonah is the only preacher in history who was mad that his sermon sparked a revival. He's the only, he's the only preacher ever who didn't want people walking the aisle. And we're given insight into why. Verse 2 and verse 3 of chapter 4 are the key verses in, in interpreting Jonah. Notice why Jonah is so angry. He prayed unto the Lord in verse 2 and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me. For it's better for me to die than to live. Jonah didn't disobey God initially because he was afraid. I should say because he was afraid of what the cruel Assyrians might do to him should he come to Nineveh and proclaim judgment. That didn't, that didn't scare him. If it did, it, it wasn't the reason why he disobeyed. He wasn't worried about a long journey to Nineveh. He wasn't worried about being gone from home and missing his family. He disobeyed because he didn't want God being good to them. He disobeyed because he knew how forgiving Yahweh is. And he would rather disobey God and even die himself than the enemies of the Jews and these cruel, sorry Assyrians hear the truth and have the opportunity to repent. And what finally did happen, Jonah loses his mind. He is beyond furious. God, if you won't kill the Ninevites, then you better just kill me. The rest of chapter 4, God taught Jonah a very valuable lesson using a gourd plant and a worm, some more wind, a scorching sun. And the lesson that Jonah is being taught is about God's love and concern for every bit of his creation. All of it, not just the Jews. Salvation is of the Lord. So there's Jonah in a nutshell. Jonah's considered one of the 12 minor prophets. You probably know that. The word minor, though, is sort of a misnomer, isn't it? 
Minor doesn't mean that Jonah's unimportant. It doesn't mean that he was too young to vote. It just means that it's the term that we gave 12 books of the Bible, these prophets, because their writings are not as lengthy as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. But there's nothing minor about Jonah or any prophet of God. We just, we just call them that. Jonah's a little different, though, because there's not much prophecy in his book. We think of a prophet. We need some prophecy. Well, there's not much here. Jonah's prophetic sermon to Nineveh, when he finally does go, it's all of five words in the Hebrew language. Five words. That's it. It's a short sermon. Y'all are thinking, Brother Matt, you need to take a note from Jonah, right? He said what he had to say and got out of there. Most of the book is narrative. We'll talk more about that in a minute. We don't really know a whole lot about the man Jonah. The only other place he's mentioned in the Old Testament is in 2 Kings chapter 14. And from that context, we learn that he's from Galilee, which is part of the northern kingdom of Israel. Ironically, when Jesus was alive, you may remember something that the uh, religious leaders said when they were doubtful of who Jesus was and, and that God sent him. They said, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. I guess they just conveniently forgot about Jonah that day because he was indeed from Galilee. It's tough to date the book of Jonah. Context of 2 Kings, uh, him being mentioned there helps us. But it's not easy because in the book of Jonah, no king is mentioned. No king of Israel and no king of Assyria, at least not by name. We're, we're told about the king of Nineveh, but not by name. And so the story probably happened sometime in the 8th century B.C. when the Assyrian Empire, which had been a dominant world empire, was sort of in a downswing, sort of in a decline. And that would explain why there's no Assyrian king mentioned by name. Interestingly, though, Assyria would enjoy another upswing, a return to power. And if you know your biblical history, you know that it's going to be Assyria that comes to take Jonah's own people in the northern kingdom captive in about 732 B.C. Isn't it amazing how God works in all of that? A few of the major lessons that I want to point out that we'll see as we study through this book the next few weeks, and these aren't all of them, but, but a few major ones, we will see in this story God's unlimited power and sovereignty. His dominion is not limited to Israel. You can't put a fence around God's power and control and sovereignty. You cannot confine it and restrict it. Very little in this book happens in Israel. And yet God's still in control. He's in control in the sea. He's in control in a pagan city like Nineveh. He's even in control when Jonah's in the fish's belly. He's also sovereign over everything in this story. He used the wind. He used the sea. He used the fish. He'll use a gourd plant. He'll use a worm. It's sort of funny in a, in a tragic, ironic way is that in this story, everything does exactly what God says to do, except Jonah. Everything obeys God except his man. That's kind of sad, isn't it? 
Another major lesson in Jonah is that God always honors true repentance from anyone. Salvation is of the Lord. We know that. We agree with that. We amen that truth. But we really need to let it sink in. Jonah said it. Jonah prayed it. And then he's furious when it happened. He struggled with this. Jonah didn't want God to be merciful to those sorry Assyrians. They're cruel, awful people. They deserved God's wrath. They deserved that judgment. But the truth is, so did Jonah. And so do you. So do I. Thank God for His mercy. Thank God that as David wrote in Psalm 51, He never despises a broken and contrite heart. He honored repentance in those pagans. He forgave them. And He stayed His judgment. How Jonah hated them. But God loves people that we don't even like. The third major lesson is that God knew salvation's plan from long ago. And we'll talk more about this in a few minutes. But we really can't dive deep into Jonah without addressing the elephant in the room. Or maybe we should say the whale in the room. Jonah is one of the most maligned and dismissed and questioned books of of the entire Bible. Because are we actually to believe that a man was swallowed by a fish and three days and three nights later is vomited back up on land and lives to tell about this? Are we actually to believe that? For that very reason... Critics have attacked the story of Jonah as as fictitious, as false, as a fairy tale. And sadly, some professing believers have come to view it merely as allegorical. Just sort of a parabolic story that we can learn from but didn't really happen. Say, well, does it matter? Does it matter if Jonah's fact or fiction? Does it change anything else? It absolutely matters. In fact, we'll see in a few moments that the gospel itself is at stake. So I'm going to give you four reasons why we must accept this story as history, not as an allegory. And the final reason is going to be the most powerful and the most important. But the first reason we uh, we don't need to dismiss this as a true story because of the miracle of Jonah and the fish is because then what do we do with the rest of the Bible? If we're unwilling to accept this miracle, then do we throw out the Red Sea crossing? Do we throw out manna falling from heaven? Do we laugh at Daniel surviving a night in the lion's den and and, and scoff at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not being burned in a fiery furnace? More so, are we still going to accept the miraculous virgin birth? And all the miracles that Jesus performed? If we question one miracle, where do we stop? We start to become judges of the Bible instead of letting the Bible judge us. 
C.S. Lewis argued that if we accept the existence of God, then we must accept the possibility of miracles. If God exists, then miracles are possible. In fact, we're living in the biggest one of all. Say, what do you mean? This universe was spoken into existence by an almighty, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent creator. That's miraculous. That's a supernatural display of power that doesn't happen every day. God is real. God is powerful. Therefore, miracles are possible. So we can't dismiss Jonah because there's a miracle recorded. Secondly, we need to accept Jonah as history because of the way it was written. You know, in Hebrew, you can tell the difference between poetry and prose just like you can in English. You can tell the difference if you're reading a story or song lyrics. Same thing's true in the Hebrew language. And this Hebrew work is undoubtedly written as a historical narrative. There are psalms recorded in chapter 2 of Jonah's prayer, but this is undoubtedly a narrative. So we should accept it that way. The third point to make about the historicity of Jonah, and I love this one, is that it passes what some call the cover-up test. And what the cover-up test is, is basically one of many things you can do with a document to examine its accuracy. There's a lot, there's several of these sort of tests that you can look at, but the cover-up test essentially says, let's look and see if the author covered up his own flaws or failures. Did the writer of this book make himself look good? Did he leave out embarrassing details, or was he this just superhero of a man who never messed up and... You know, if Matt Thornton wrote a book about Matt Thornton, Matt Thornton might end up looking pretty good. Jonah passes the cover-up test with flying colors, doesn't he? Whether he wrote it or someone else was led to tell this story, the main character isn't much of a hero. He comes across looking pretty bad. He flat-out disobeys God. And when, he, when God later shows mercy, Jonah can't stand it. He explodes with rage. That this, this principle of the cover-up test isn't limited to Jonah. You may have already thought, well, the whole Bible passes that test, Brother Matt. It does, and it's awesome. It's one of the many strong reasons to, to place your faith in its inspiration and its accuracy and its truthfulness. Because the Bible never makes attempts to make people look better than they were. Never. We know of major sins that Abraham and Moses and David committed. Major men of God. Jesus' own disciples, those of you in Brother Connor's Sunday school class, we've seen this recently. They look like fools half the time. They don't understand what Jesus is saying. They're not even looking for the resurrection. The whole Bible passes this cover-up test. It's truthful and accurate even when it comes to recording the failures of God's own people. But finally, and most importantly, the reason we must accept Jonah's story as historical fact is because Jesus Christ did. Jesus Christ 
is always right about everything. Don't ever argue with Jesus. I want you to look at Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to see a time when Jesus not only mentioned Jonah, but he referred to him as a prophet and even referenced the miracle of Jonah surviving the fish's belly. And this is going to tie in with that third major lesson from Jonah that God knew salvation's plan from long ago. So keep that in mind as well. Look at Matthew chapter 12. Look at verse 38 through 41. Matthew 12 verse 38. Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee, or we, we would desire to see a sign from thee. But he answered and said unto them, An evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. There shall no sign be given to it, but or except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with or against this generation and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, a greater than Jonah is here. You may wonder why Jesus seemed so cold and critical when these religious leaders asked him for a sign. We, we desire a sign from thee. Well, maybe if Jesus would have performed a miracle right, then they would have believed. Did Jesus miscalculate here? Why the cold criticism? Well, to fully understand Jesus' answer, we need to back up and get a little more of the context. So look back at verse 22 through 24. Verse 22. Then was brought unto him one possessed with the devil, blind and dumb or mute. And he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. Matthew specifically told us that this demon has rendered this poor man blind and mute. And that may seem like irrelevant details, but they're not. It's extremely important because of Jewish tradition. Traditionally, when a Jew cast a demon out of someone, there was this formula that they used. There were this, these steps that they took, and it had to do with establishing communication with the possessed person by asking the name of the demon. Jesus even did this at least once in his ministry. We, we know the story of when he asks the demon's name and the demon responds by saying, Legion, or we're many. And so that's the typical method or formula for exorcisms for the Jews. You had to establish communication. Well, what's the problem here? Since the demon has rendered the man mute, this turns out to be a hopeless situation. It's beyond their skill. It's something that they cannot do. And so this was viewed as hopeless since none of the usual tactics would work. But the Jews also traditionally believed that the Messiah, and only the Messiah, would still be able to do this powerful miracle. 
That explains this son of David phrase being uttered by the people after Jesus performed this miracle. Now, they weren't, they weren't completely ready to accept him fully. Brother Connor mentioned this when he taught about it uh, months ago when he went through this. He may have used the phrase guarded amazement. They are, they are in wonder of what's going on, but they're still, they're still not ready to fully embrace him. But this isn't the son of David, is it? There, there's something different about this man now. They're definitely stirred. And in the face of this undeniable sign, the religious leaders claimed he's only doing this through satanic power. Think about how tragic that is for just a second. To see one of Jesus' own miracles with your very eyes, and not just any old miracle, which is kind of a silly phrase to say, any old miracle, but a special one. And then you claim that he's empowered by the devil. They can't deny the miracle, so they deny the power behind it. Well, Jesus then gave them a little schooling in logic. Look at verse 25 and 26. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? We understand this logic perfectly. Civil wars, infighting, division, they don't build up kingdoms. They weaken kingdoms. They tear them apart. You need unity. You need togetherness. You need teamwork. All those things to build things up. Divisions tear things down. So why in the world would Satan cast a demon out of a man? You honestly think Satan wants to weaken his own kingdom? Is that what you men think? Verse 26 makes me laugh. It's sort of, look, if Satan's doing that then, why are y'all so mad? If, if Satan's truly weakening his own kingdom, what's the big deal? His kingdom's being weakened. Look at verse 27. And if I, Bobby Elzebub, cast out devils, if that's, if that's really happening, well, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. The point here is that when the religious leaders, or, and even more so their followers, are performing their own exorcism, they're not about to attribute that to the power of Satan. So let's be consistent here, guys. Obviously, this is not a sign of satanic power at work. So look at verse 28. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. Obviously, Jesus is casting out demons by the Spirit of God because Satan doesn't cast out Satan. So it has to be from the Spirit of God. And Jesus just exercised a demon out of a man who was mute. Jesus was telling these men, the king of the kingdom of God is standing in your midst. Offering indisputable evidence of His majesty. And in this same context, just ten verses later, 
<clears throat> Master, we would see a sign from thee. Are you kidding me? Now do you understand Jesus' response? Now do you understand why he labeled them an evil and an adulterous generation? But what's awesome is that still in his mercy, he did mention another sign, didn't he? 39 and 40 again. There shall be no sign given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah's time in the fish is one of, if not the most important part of his story, because it pointed to Jesus Christ. The swallowing up of Jonah parallels Jesus' death and burial, and the fish vomiting Jonah back up parallels the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even the time frame mirrors the time frame of Jesus' death and resurrection. So Jesus used Jonah to prophesy about his own death and resurrection and said that the ultimate sign of who I am will be my resurrection. The ultimate sign that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God is that he walked out of the grave. That's what we talked about last week, right? So... That was a long side trail there. If we dismiss Jonah and say, that's, that's not history, then what does that say about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I told you the very gospel is at stake. If Jonah is allegorical, then so is the resurrection. And if the resurrection's allegorical, we are all hopeless. But we know that's heresy. The resurrection's a historical fact, just as Jonah being in the fish is a historical fact. Jesus died, but he rose again. And in this connection with, with Jesus, we see that third major lesson that I mentioned. God knew salvation's plan long, long ago. He wasn't making it up as, as time went by. He wasn't uh, doing things on the fly. Jonah's story happened uh, roughly 800 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and yet God would take Jonah's own story to illustrate a larger one. You should think about that for a moment. When a prophet was disobedient to God... And he's tossed overboard in a storm, swallowed by a fish. God knew that one day my son will use this very story to predict his own resurrection. Just roughly 800 years later. God is incredible. And so big picture, Jonah is a story about God's love for all mankind. And how he always responds to genuine repentance. God is merciful and gracious and forgiving when people are humble and when they repent, no matter who they are. 
But then on a little deeper level, within this story that is all about God's love and forgiveness for all is the story of Jonah himself, whose time in the fish points to Jesus' own death, burial, and resurrection. So this Old Testament story that teaches God's love for all also foreshadows how he offers his love for all. It's through the gospel, through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jonah, in a nutshell, is the gospel in a nutshell. If you're listening to this message and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, I cannot possibly urge you and encourage you enough. Other people may hate you. They may despise you. You may say, oh, Brother Matt, I know you said the Assyrians were pretty cruel and they were wicked, but I'm wicked too. We all are. But salvation's of the Lord. You are never outside of the power of God to save you if you will humble yourself and repent. He will always show mercy. Long ago, he knew salvation's plan. He knew that you would need a Savior, and he sent the only one in the universe who could possibly do it. If you've never trusted in Christ, trust Him today. Along with this story being so important because of the gospel, it's also very relevant and timely because of the world we live in today. Because we live in a world that is filled with prejudice and hatred. Jonah would fit in in 2021. Let me tell you, his hatred of someone different from him, nobody would bat an eye. He hated the Assyrians. He was furious when God saved them. And so, it's easy for us to look at Jonah and point fingers and say, I can't believe you, Jonah. But let's do some honest soul searching as we read through Jonah. Who are your Assyrians? Who would you not share the gospel with? Who would you hate it if God showered mercy upon? Who do you hope doesn't ever visit our church? It's easy to bash Jonah. But let's honestly look in the mirror and allow our Creator to break our hearts and mold us to be more like Him. This story is not as much about Jonah as it is about the wonderful love and mercy of God. If salvation wasn't of the Lord, you and I would be hopeless. Let's be so thankful for God's mercy, for his second chances as we start this this series together. Let's stand and let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the time we've been able to meet and fellowship around your word and pray that our hearts are open, that we've learned and been challenged by your truth. God, be with us as we 
study through the book of Jonah this next few weeks. Prepare our hearts for this study, Lord. We pray that even though Jonah isn't always a good example, that we will still learn from him. And we thank you so much for your mercy upon people who repent. Lord, thank you so much for Jesus, for this wonderful plan that you have had even before time began. We pray for those who are lost, Lord, that they would trust you before it's too late. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray you were encouraged by today's message from the Word of God. This sermon audio is available for free on all major podcast formats, as well as our website at northbryantbaptist.org. Thank you for listening.